In the US, as of this month, it's now possible to buy and sell Bitcoin through ETFs. None of the complexities of dealing through crypto exchanges and having crypto wallets and all that sort of stuff. It's just a straightforward buy and sell like any ETF. So does that mean cryptocurrencies have come of age? Does it make them a safer investment? What changes now you can easily buy and sell crypto-linked securities? That's this week. The Morning Call from NAB with Phil Dobby. The Weekend Edition. Now, I fear I might upset a few people today because I am not a big advocate of cryptocurrencies. Maybe that is just sour grapes because I didn't put money into them at the right time. But also, I don't fully understand them. And we should add, seeing as that's what we're talking about this week on the Weekend Edition, as always, the views you hear on the Weekend Edition are mine and those are my guests, not those of NAB. The idea of the Weekend Edition is that we get a broader spread of opinions beyond the NAB markets team that we hear from during the week. Uh, But they don't reflect any position or stance taken by the bank on anything we discuss. So there we are. There is a massive disclaimer right there. But now is the right time to discuss crypto because the US securities regulator has approved US listed ETFs linked to Bitcoin. Now, actually, they announced it twice because the first time uh, their social media accounts were hacked, an announcement was made prematurely by an unauthorized tweet. But soon after, they announced it for real. So is this the coming of age for Bitcoin and crypto in general, will it become a more mainstream investment or is it still a massive risk that's backed by hyperbole and very little else? Uh, well, let's look at all of that with Frances Coppola. She is a financial economist and author and blogger in the UK. Uh, she writes for a lot of places, including the FT, her own Coppola comments blog. Uh, she's also written on crypto for Coindesk. Uh, she joins us today. So uh, welcome, Francis. This this approval by the SEC in the United States, they've approved uh, 10, I think it is, Bitcoin ETFs on January the 10th. Does this change the landscape for crypto, do you think? To some degree, because it does make it easier for people who want to have Bitcoin in their portfolios to gain exposure to it without actually having to take on Bitcoin with all the custody that that involves. Um, They can buy shares in an ETF. Um, And that is easier for people. Uh, for particularly for indeed particularly for retail investors, it means they, they they will be buying ETFs from people like BlackRock um, rather than going out and buying Bitcoin on an, on an exchange, which I think a lot of people feel daunted by. And also, um, it's fair to say that banks have actually made it quite difficult for people to do that. You know, even to get your get some fiat money onto a crypto exchange in order to buy Bitcoin is problematic these days. And again, that makes it difficult for people simply to invest in it as part of a portfolio choice. So this is a way of people gaining access to Bitcoin, um, getting exposure to Bitcoin, benefiting from its price swings and also taking the downsides, to be fair, um, who otherwise might not have done. And, and And that could be good for adoption. Of Bitcoin as an investment asset. Well, yes, so you'd think if it's easier, more people would be yeah. buying it, and therefore you'd think there'd be a sort of like a sudden uh, leap in demand for it, sort of right now over the last week or so, which you'd assume would mean the price has gone up, but it hasn't really, not too much anyway. 
No, well, the thing is, though, you know, the, everything gets priced in, doesn't it? And this has been mm. widely anticipated ever since the SEC lost its court case uh, against Grayscale, um, which um, said that the, essentially that the SEC had been perverse in allowing Bitcoin futures ETFs, but not spot Bitcoin, cash Bitcoin ETFs. And the SEC needed to come up with a good reason why it was discriminating against in fact, against Grayscale. Um, and uh, it would appear that the um, SEC has gone back and thought about it and concluded that actually trying to explain that was a bit too hard. So they've just permitted the <laughs> Right. And the difference, of course, is because when you're trading on futures, I mean, that is, I mean, it's all speculation, of course. But if you're trading on futures, you're not buying the underlying assets. So these spot ETFs mean that there is actually Bitcoin sitting underneath or sitting behind them. Yes, absolutely. So in a way, it's not the individual investor that's going to buy the Bitcoin now. It's going to be the big companies behind it, you know, the Black Rocks and Fidelities and people like that are going to be buying and holding the Bitcoin, as, of course, Grayscale was already doing. So, I mean, it still is a speculative asset, obviously. There's no sort of underlying net worth apart from its scarcity which i you know which i guess is fine because gold is only worth something because it's gold and that's only because there's not a lot of it so i mean you could argue it's exactly the same but does the ability to dip in and out through etfs uh does that make it more speculative does that make it more volatile or is the fact that there will be greater volume and you know people trading in and out does that make it less volatile you could argue either way couldn't you yeah it's an interesting question that because bitcoin has always been very volatile i mean it's had several major crashes in its 15 year history um so wonders <laughs> what it would be like if it was even more volatile i mean in theory actually um having lots and lots of small movements in and out of exchange traded funds arguably should should if anything dampen it a little bit i would just i would think um but obviously if there is a run on bitcoin as there has been before then it, now it would play out through the etfs in other words you would get runs on the um on the etfs um that people were investing into blackrock and fidelity and grayscale and so forth rather than directly on bitcoin um and it's the um Asset holders might well find themselves hanging on to the Bitcoin in order to try and encourage people to come back. And who who are going to be the buyers? Are we going to see more retail buyers? Because if you, I would have thought, and this is you know this is my bias showing through, which I gave right at the very beginning. I mean, if you are a fund manager, you're looking after someone else's money. I, I I just see it as like putting money on a horse. I mean, you can do it with your own money, but if I was giving my money to somebody else to manage my investments, I wouldn't be very happy if I saw them down at the race course on a, on a, on a Saturday afternoon. And it feels a bit like that to me. I think it needs to be an investor preference. I mean, you know, an ordinary investor, I think, needs to have inform information and control over their risk appetite. So fund managers arguably shouldn't be investing in Bitcoin ETFs unless the investors who are buying their funds know that that's what they're investing in. Uh, you know, it, it, it needs to be open and above board and transparent and they need information. People need to understand what they're getting into. I think now Bitcoin in some respects is quite a mature asset class and I think people know that it is extremely volatile and very risky. That has that information has been disseminated widely. Um, maybe there are some people out there who still don't quite understand just how risky it is. Um, but I think maybe it's more likely to be people who say, "Well, 
if I get in, I can always get out because actually it's a lot easier to get out of an ETF than it is to get out of Bitcoin. Yeah, but I mean, if it's, um, I, I, yeah, so I guess that means so it's de- you're de-risking it in a way, aren't you? But then yeah. does that mean the risk then all of a sudden gets held by the, uh, by, the, by, by the ETFs themselves? That's exactly it. And that, in a way, is the worrying thing here is that, um, that there is quite a bit of risk involved for the fund managers. My guess is that's why it's a very big ones who've done it actually because they have the, the the resources really to be able to absorb um, major losses on um, Bitcoin value, and if they and I would imagine they have um, calculated the risk of that based upon Bitcoin's history. I mean, Bitcoin now it's got the halving the halving coming later this year as well, but the price usually goes up. Um, at that time. Um, so I am expecting the Bitcoin price to rise over the next year or two. Um, but I'm also expecting there to be another major crash in the future because that's how it rolls. Well, and if it loses that volatility, what is it? You know, I mean, the only reason you'd say, well, okay, let's do a bit of Bitcoin is because of its volatility that you're hoping for a quick win. If it, if it, uh, if it sort of calms itself down, well, what is it? It's just an asset class that really is not tied to anything. It's difficult to know what it's going to do. Yeah. Um, the, the volatility is, it is part of its attraction, I would say. The fact that you can, if you pick at the right time, get in at the right time and get out at the right time, perhaps more importantly, um, you can actually make quite a lot on, of money on Bitcoin. It's, it's always, I think, what attracts people is that they think they can ride ride the wave. And so every time we've seen a Bitcoin price go on a tear, um, we have seen an awful lot of people buying into it who haven't previously bought into it. And it's fair to say a lot of those people have lost out bad, badly in the past. This does de-risk it a bit for them if they're buying ETFs, they're buying shares in an ETF. It's easier for them to get out, and the risk is borne by the by the underlying asset holder, and that might be better. It might provide a degree of protection for um, retail investors, and, and that may be one of the reasons for um, the SEC's decision. Yeah, but it also might mean it loses its appeal if it just sort of flatlines. Because I mean, most asset classes, I mean, they respond to events, don't they? Whether it's you know d- data, geopolitical events. I mean, oil moves when there's a downturn in the global economy, for example. I mean, crypto only seems to move in response to news about crypto. You know, and uh, we've got crypto holders who obviously are talking it up because, you know, there's an inherent interest in, in doing that. If we've got a load of people piling into it and then piling out again through ETFs, I mean, that what is it responding to? How, you know, what what is determining the price of crypto? Well, I actually think that Bitcoin is primarily um, a central bank play. In other words, the move, the big moves we see in um, Bitcoin prices and um, other major cryptocurrencies and and in stablecoins as well, um, come from changes in particularly Federal Reserve monetary policy. So when the Fed Reserve cuts interest rates and maybe embarks on QE, Bitcoin tends to go up. And the reason for that is that everybody's terrified of inflation. Now we've actually got inflation um, uh, and the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates and and um, withdrawing QE. And Bitcoin is less attractive and people are, are kind of piling into uh, going into other things. That's, that's partly what caused the crypto 
crashes of last year. So my, my, my take on it is that what you need to be watching here is Fed monetary policy, and that will give you an idea of the direction that Bitcoin is going to go. And this is why I think Bitcoin will go up, because the, all the mood music is right now. What markets are pricing in is interest rate cuts later this year. Right. Yeah. Which is the old argument, wasn't it? It's like the anti-fiat currency, isn't it? You know, it's like if there's there's just too much fiat money around, so uh, you, you're safe with cryptocurrencies because there's less of them and it's it's constrained. Yeah, so, absolutely. The, the Bitcoin scarcity thing is absolutely about if there's too much. It's actually absolutely quantity of money stuff. It's if there's too much money in circulation, there will be inflation. Mm, um, yeah. Therefore, put your money into Bitcoin because Bitcoin is scarce. Bitcoin is naturally scarce. Bitcoin will not respond. There's no central authority that can switch on the Bitcoin taps. It doesn't. It it is this um, automated production at a given rate, and every now and then the production rate halves, which is why the Bitcoin price tends to go up when the halving happens. Because then it, I mean, it, the, the rate of production becomes slower. It's not quite true. It's sometimes presented as oh, it's becoming even scarcer. That's not actually true. It's uh, the it, it, I mean, the quantity of Bitcoin in circulation is actually growing and will continue to do so for the next hundred years or so. But the rate at which it is increasing is naturally slows every about every four years. Now, the scarcity, of course, gets diluted when you get more cryptocurrencies coming along, though. If it was just Bitcoin, then that would be very scarce. But then we started having others. So that scarcity diminishes a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, um, it's an interesting point, this. Um, you know, it depends how purist you are about Bitcoin. And some people are purist about it. Some people will say there is only one real proper cryptocurrency, and that is Bitcoin. All the rest are mere imitators. And, um, you know, if you invest in those, they are just speculative junk. And if you lose your shirt, it's your fault. Um, and they don't see the two as related, really. Um, uh, for me, that's too purist an attitude. There's very much, I mean, cryptocurrencies are um, very much sort of out of the same line of thinking, the same ideas, as Bitcoin, they grew out, they grew from it. And so you do have to look at the ecosystem as a whole. And it is a fact that a lot of holders of Bitcoin do diversify into other things that are part of this, the same ecosystem, same crypto ecosystem, including some exceedingly fancy, fancy derivatives. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's saying, oh, well, they're not really, Bit they're not really Bitcoin. They're not really cryptocurrencies. This is a bit like saying that, you know, sort of interest rate swaps aren't really US dollars, aren't really related to US dollars. Well, yes, they are. Right. OK, well, getting back to that point about, you know, follow central banks. I mean, it's it's and, you know, the anti-fiat currency approach. I mean, that would mean and, it, and people were saying, obviously, it was, you know, it's going to be inflation proof. But I mean, it, that wasn't the case, was it? I mean, we it, it responded in a way as we started to see uh, inflation picking up uh, and, you know, the crisis that we've been in over the last couple of years. Uh, cryptocurrency sort of behaved a little bit, well, Bitcoin did anyway, like, uh, you know, m like many other asset classes. It collapsed. And yeah. um, this was something that, that I think people hadn't thought about, that they saw. I mean, you think about where Bitcoin came from. It grew out of the 2008 financial crisis um, when everybody hated banks. And then everybody hated central banks because uh, QE particularly <clears throat> was expected to be very inflationary. And so um, Bitcoin really grew from that about let's have a totally different financial system that doesn't rely on banks, doesn't rely on central banks, and is, is just people um, interacting with people. And that's where it comes from. Um, it's fair to say that a lot of cryptocurrency has rather sold its soul on that one um, because you know, we've had everything growing up from crypto banks, which spectacularly failed last year, many of them. Um, you know, and uh, the, the exchanges came along very early, of course. And, you know, even now the forms of 
um, forms of central banks like Tether. Um, so it's kind of replicating the same kind of infrastructure, but without governments involved. And once you get into central bank digital currencies, then you've potentially even got governments involved. And part of the crypto industry seems to want that to happen. They were cheered like mad when El Salvador adopted adopted Bitcoin as a, as a, as a legal tender. And they were, well, isn't this exactly the opposite of what you want, a state, a Bitcoin to become a state mandated currency? is surely kind of everything that Bitcoin was not intended to be. Um, so it's all a bit bizarre the way it's sort of become capture or become um, captive to the existing state and financial system rather than being an alternative to it. It's lost its kind of anarcho-capitalist origins a bit. Um, But um, as an inflation hedge, um, Bitcoin's actually been quite bad um, because it's actually gone up when the Fed is doing QE, which, you know, um, and then crashed when the Fed, when the Fed does something that's in, uh, that's putting more money out, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is kind of isn't that rather the opposite of what you want? Yeah, well, there we are. It shows that we really don't fully understand, do we? Which gets back to you know, is it you know, is is it? I mean, it's what is driving Bitcoin? Gets back to that question, doesn't it? How do you how do you invest in something if you don't fully understand what is actually the mechanism that's driving it? Mm-hmm. And then if it loses some of that uh, that volatility because everyone's piling into it through ETFs and it becomes just another traded asset. Does it lose its appeal? Because, you know, what is, what is sitting behind it? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of long-term Bitcoin investment should be, I mean, there are the short-term traders, obviously, who are momentum traders. They're hoping it will go up and they're also hoping they'll get out before it crashes. I mean, it's essentially it. And there's an awful lot of that. But there are long-term holders of Bitcoin who are relying on the fact that actually, and this is fair, over its lifetime so far, even with the extreme volatility, if you've held on to your Bitcoin and ridden out those periods of volatility, you've done very well. Um, the whales in Bitcoin are the people who bought in early and held. Um, so in that respect, it's a little bit like a property, uh, an asset class we don't think of volatile, uh, of as volatile, which is property. That There have been some extreme crashes in the property market, but over time, property appreciates. And Bitcoin, in some respects, acts a bit like that. Now, whether it will continue to do so, I don't know. know, The property as an asset asset class has been in existence for the best part of a century. And you do have a house at the end of it. And you do have an actual physical asset, yes. With Bitcoin, you famously don't. You've just wasted a lot of of energy. Yeah, and there is Um, that. (laughs) But, um, you know, so whether um, the... Um, long-term appreciation will continue. Um, I don't know. It might flatline at some point, in which case we're back to what is the point of holding it? Because if you didn't buy in earlier, you aren't going to make any money. Yeah, well, that is the question, isn't it? And then because the, the other side of it all, which everyone seems to have, have forgotten about, is this talk about it being a currency. And you mentioned El Salvador. I'm not really quite sure you go into a uh, corner store in El Salvador. You'll be whipping out your Bitcoin. I think you'll no, uh, probably dollars. You're going to say you'll be using your US dollar. So uh, given that it's not really a currency either, and in any case, you know, it, it's the, this is just another example, isn't it? Where to, to buy them, you've got to use the dollar to, to get them through the ETFs, yeah. you know. So it, it's losing its edge as a, as a 
a as a currency, and maybe that's a good thing. I mean, there's been commentators in the past, you know, talking about you know what is the end game for cryptocurrencies, and you know, the, the, some people have suggested well because of all the money laundering and all the dangers it provides to to governments, ultimately it's going to be outlawed. Uh, but maybe if it just quietly becomes an asset class, maybe it's got a, a chance of survival. Where do you where do you actually think it is headed? And I'm in my view for quite some time now has been that we are in a process of absorption that once the regulators get their act together, rather than trying to ban Bitcoin, which will essentially result in a game of whack-a-mole around the world as um, Bitcoiners and a lot of crypto people try to evade the regulation that would close them down. And that has been going on for a while. Um, but what the at some point, the regulators would change their approach and um, adopt um, a more absorptive um, approach whereby you can continue to exist if you do it our way. And that means complying with the regulations that we set you, whether those are existing regulations dating back to the 1930s, um, as in the United States, or new regulations, as in Europe. That seems to be what regulators are doing now. So we're going to regulate these things. So and 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 with reason, saying you know, it, it, crypto has become riddled with scams and frauds, and and it is a, a serious danger to naive investors. Um, so you know, regulators saying we want to make it safe. We're now getting away from the idea that we can simply stop people investing in it. Now we want to make it safe, so that anybody who does want to invest in it isn't at risk of being massively ripped off. And that's, if you like, treating crypto now more like a mature industry, mature financial industry um, and taking a similar approach as has been taken to banks and insurance companies and all the other things that you know, can, if unregulated, massively rip people off. Yeah. Well, let's hope we don't get another GameStop um, driven through social media going through these, uh, these ETFs. Now that was a COVID thing, wasn't it? That was all to do. An immense amount of money sloshing around during COVID, and a lot of people with no no means of spending it. Yeah, and yeah. then and know, too much time on their hands. Yeah, and exactly. lots of time on their hands because mm. they'd all be they they'd all lost their jobs or been furloughed, and and so they were sitting there in their bedrooms messing around on social media and and playing with with with. Um, oh, this is this is fun. We can be all anarchic and drive up a, a silly um, <laughs> a silly share. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hope we don't see those days again. Look, Francis, it's been uh, very illuminating talking to you and uh, let's get you on again sometime soon. Thanks for your time. Absolute pleasure. It's been fun. All very interesting. I still don't get it, though. Uh, you might as well be betting on cane toad racing, racing as far as I'm concerned. Look, next week, uh, what about the share market? Back on more familiar territory there with the US earnings season well underway and it kicking off in Australia. We'll talk through it all with Gemma Dale from NAB Trade. That's next week's weekend edition. I'm back on Monday morning, of course, for our regular weekday edition of the Morning Call as well. I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. See you soon. The Weekend Edition.